Most uh, people like comics. Uh, most of you have probably already read the Sunday Funnies before you came here this morning. At, um, the church I was involved with before used to have this wall on which people would pin very interesting articles, uh, theological articles, bulletins of upcoming events. And they'd also pin up uh, cartoon strips that they thought were particularly funny. And I uh, used to stop, watch people stop, and they'd spend 15 minutes reading every one of those comic strips. And they wouldn't glance twice at the articles or the bulletins or anything else on the board. Eventually, the whole wall was covered with comic strips. It was virtually impossible to walk by that wall without stopping and reading the latest ones. We get a magazine around uh, the staff here at Cole called Leadership Magazine. And uh, it's got a lot of good, interesting articles on leadership and on ministry. But also about every fourth page, there's a little one-frame cartoon. And I'll bet you that uh, the only part of that magazine that gets read regularly around here on staff are the cartoons. We like cartoons. In fact, if you're a typical American, you read front page of your newspaper every morning, and then after having fulfilled that moral and intellectual and civic responsibility, you turn to the important part. You go straight back to the comic section. I uh, like Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side, which probably tells you more about my warped psyche than I want you to know. But I can still remember the first Far Side that I, that I ever saw. It cracked me up. It was a picture of this little boy in this deep, dark forest with these huge trees all around and sinister eyeballs peering out from behind every one of the trees. And the caption read, Timmy realized he was no longer in the toy department. <laughs> and as you look at this, you can feel what a little boy feels when he's lost at a big department store. Another one that uh, got me was the um, one of these two guys sitting in a boat fishing, and on the horizon you see the mushroom clouds from four nuclear explosions. And one of the fishermen saying to the other one, he says, I'll tell you what this means, Norm. No size restrictions and the heck with the limit. <laughs> I think the one I like uh, the best is the two guys sitting on a, on a deserted island, a little tiny island, sitting right next to each other, clothes are all ragged long beards, and one of them scowling at the other one, and he says, if I hear the theme song to the Mr. Ed show one more time, Hal, I will kill you as you sleep. <laughs> yeah, these uh, lose something in the telling. You have to see them to appreciate them. But I think what makes uh, th those cartoons so effective is, is you, you look at the picture, you see the, the caption, and then it kind of gradually dawns on you what's going on, and you start to feel some of the things that they would be feeling in, in that cartoon. It starts to, the humor just kind of starts to grow. We, we love this kind of thing. It, it's, it's a mental vacation, a chance to just let our minds react without any pressure, let ourselves respond. It also is effective in getting us to engage our brains, to start thinking. Well, in the passage we're looking at this morning, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus begins to use parables. And what parables are are little stories that have a point. They're, they're, they're stories from everyday life, maybe uh, even humorous stories, sometimes even absurd little stories. But they have a point. Race Dedman calls these vocal cartoons. 
And Jesus uses these to, 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 to communicate truth, to catch people's attention, attention, to get their minds engaged, to get them to start thinking. And as you think about these little stories, just like when you think about a cartoon, the, the, the meaning begins to unfold, and that meaning begins to bore its way into our minds, into our hearts. So let's take a look at uh, Mark 4, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. It begins in, in verse 1. And they began to teach again by the sea, and such a great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat and in the sea and sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seed fell on the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, among the, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables, in order that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. The first thing they were told is that the crowds had become too intense. Uh, if you remember in chapter 3, when Jesus was teaching by the sea, uh, he had a boat waiting just in case the crowds got too aggressive in trying to reach him, trying to touch him and be healed. Well, apparently the, the press of the crowd, the crush of the crowd had grown too great. So Jesus got on the boat, and they backed it off just a couple of yards offshore. And that, that created a natural little crowd break. And Jesus sat on the boat. It was a platform from which he could teach. And all the people sat in the natural amphitheater made by the steep, the steep shore. We're told that Jesus began to teach them in parables. In fact, later on in the same chapter, we're told that from this point on, he only taught in parables when he was addressing crowds, when he was doing his public teaching. And then we're told what this parable is. Parables, basically, a guy got up, decided to plant his field, went out, started throwing seeds out on his field. Some of the seed fell on the hard ground, some fell on rocky ground, some fell on weedy ground, some fell on good soil. The only seed that produced any good crop was the seed on the good soil. The rest of the crop had problems. And that was the story. And that was all there was to it. Then he finishes and says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now picture yourself as being one of those people out there sitting on the bank. You've come to hear this guy. You've heard about him before. You've read about him in the Jerusalem Post. He's up here, uh, amazing people with his teachings. He, he, he's, he's blowing their mind with his miraculous healings and deliverances. And you've even seen some of the people that he's healed around Jerusalem who testify. Maybe a few of them were even on the uh, Phil Donahueberg show, arguing with the religious leaders 
who were saying that this guy Jesus must be either certifiably wacko or demon-possessed. So you and the Mrs. went on up to find out for yourself. You walked all the way up there. You get there. There's a huge crowd. You fight your way through the huge crowd. You're sitting up on the bank, straining to hear this guy, listening to him. And he tells you this silly little story about a farmer. And then he walks away. And no miracles, no mind-boggling words of wisdom, nothing. Just a dumb little story about a farmer who throws his seed out, and some of it grows and some of it doesn't. What are you going to think? How are you going to feel? You're going to look at your wife and say, what is this? And you're going to do one of two things. Either you're going to say, this is a joke, this is a ripoff. And you're going to walk away disgruntled and, and disgusted like most of the crowds did. Or you're going to stop and you're going to think about it. And you're going to try to figure out what he was trying to say. And then you're going to do what the disciples did there in verse 10. Look again at verse 10. It says, And as soon as he was alone, his followers, literally those around him, it's those who in the last chapter were sitting at his feet, listening to him, paying attention to what he had to say, his followers, along with the twelve, begin asking him about the parables. So they come up to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what are you doing here? What's this parable stuff? We don't understand. And Jesus looks at him and smiles and said, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. See, they come up to him and say, Jesus, we don't understand. And he says, you've got it. You've got the key. You've got the secret to the deep things of God. In First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about the deep things of God. And this is what the mysteries of God. All the way through the, the New Testament, the mysteries of God are explained. There's, there's the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of godliness, the mystery of faith. Mystery of the kingdom. There's a lot of different mysteries. And these mysteries, these deep things of God, are the secrets, the keys to really understanding what's going on around you, what's happening in history, why people are the way they are, why you feel what you feel, what God is trying to accomplish in your life and in your community, in our church. See, these mysteries, these deep things of God, are really the secrets of understanding life beyond just the superficial. And this mystery of the kingdom of God is the fundamental mystery, the foundational mystery. Without it, you can't understand any of the rest of them. And in fact, just to emphasize how important this single mystery is, this is the, the key, the secret to understanding life. See, we all are confronted with decisions, with complexities, with confusion in life. And this mystery is the key to all of that, to, to answering questions, to dealing with questions like, what should I do? What's the right thing to do? What's the loving thing to do? Or, or, or why am I going through this? Why is God putting me through this? Why is there so much suffering? Why do the people I love, my family, my friends, why don't they come to the Lord? What is God trying to accomplish here? And these kind of questions... The mystery of the kingdom of God is the key to all of them. So these guys, like I said, came up to Jesus and he said, you already have the secret. He uses a, a tense in the Greek that emphasizes the fact 
that they're not going to get it. They have it. You've already got the answer. You've already got the key. And right about now they're saying, great, we've got it. This is neat. What is it? What do we have? And then Jesus does something that's even harder to deal with, even more disturbing. He says, to you has been given the, king, the, the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those who are on the outside, they only get parables so that, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Now what's going on here? I'm sorry to bring up more questions than I'm bringing up answers. And we'll get back to the mystery of the kingdom of God. But right now, I want to look at why would Jesus say something like that? Doesn't he want people to understand, to, to, to turn, and to be forgiven? I thought that's what he came for. Well, let me explain. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. That's the call of Isaiah, where God is calling Isaiah to send him out with a message to the people. And what's happened in the first five chapters of Isaiah is you have God over and over reasoning with his people, appealing to them, calling them back to repentance gently, strongly, lovingly. And over and over, they just play games with him. He offers to... to cleanse them of their sins, to wash them whiter than snow, to give them direction for life. And they take everything he says and twists it and try to get around it and over it and under it, to try to follow it technically and still get away with doing whatever they want to do. See, they, they were very good at offering the sacrifices and praying long, beautiful prayers. And God said, stop it. You're just playing games with me. You really don't care what I'm thinking, what my plans are, what the design is. You're just trying to feel better about yourself while you're going about doing exactly what you were going to do anyway. You just want to put a religious veneer on it. And he says, stop it. And then he calls Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, I want you to go to these people and talk to them. Tell them, go ahead. Act that way if you want to. Nobody's going to stop you. Nobody's going to force you. Pretend to care. Go ahead. Pretend to listen. You're not fooling anybody but yourself. Go ahead. See, but don't see. Hear, but don't really hear. Don't really listen. The result is going to be your ruin. Nobody's going to force change on you. And you see, that's what Jesus saw was happening. These crowds were coming to hear him. But they didn't want to hear him. They didn't really care what he was thinking. They didn't really care what his plans were, what the message he was trying to communicate. They came because they wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to see something exciting. They wanted to be impressed. Or maybe they wanted to be healed themselves. They wanted to get out of some physical problem or some political problem. They wanted him to be the Messiah that they envisioned that was going to free them from all of their political woes. See, again, they had no intention of receiving the truth, of letting it change them, of of understanding, because if they understood, then they'd have to change. And they weren't about to do that. They didn't want to change to understand God more fully. They wanted God to change to meet their expectations. So what Jesus does is to devise a way of teaching them that will accomplish two things. First of all, this technique of telling stories will 
grab their attention. It, it, he'll, he'll get the attention even of those who weren't too interested to start with. And he'll tell a story that causes them to think. People like to hear stories. It, it, we relax when we listen to a story. There's no pressure. We're not having to concentrate to follow. It just kind of comes naturally. And they, they start listening. But then he always makes sure there's a punchline, something about the story that makes them think, makes them engage their brains, wonder what he's trying to say. And the second thing that using parables does, the second thing that this technique does is it doesn't force truth on anybody. If they don't want it, they don't have to hear it. They can just dismiss it right there and walk away. See, Jesus doesn't force himself on anybody. He doesn't violate people's choices. He doesn't violate their will. He's polite. He's courteous, what he himself calls meek and gentle, lowly, humble of heart. And furthermore, he doesn't want to immunize them from the truth. We've seen over and over throughout the book of Mark, and we'll see over the next couple of weeks even more, uh, more clearly that to give people truth outside of the context of the power of God or, or prematurely before they're ready for it just serves to immunize them from the truth, just serves to, to, to dilute the power of truth when later on they may be more ready for it. And Jesus had no desire to do that. The bottom line is he did very much want them to hear. He did very much want them to understand and to let it affect them and to turn and to be forgiven. That's why he came. That's why he, he left heaven, why he became a man, why he suffered and died. There seems that there's nothing he wants more than that. But he's not going to force himself. He's not going to violate people's choices. And he's not going to make matters worse by just piling up truth on people who don't want it, who won't respond to it. That'll just further harden them, further distance them from the truth. And I find this real helpful as I deal with my own desire to turn people on to the truth, to, to explain the truth with them. Just this last week, I got a phone call from somebody who wanted me to go visit a friend of a friend in the hospital who was dying of cancer and was not a believer and had not responded to the, to the message of the gospel as, as this friend had, had presented it. And I refused to go. Now, I didn't refuse because I don't want to talk to people who don't know about the Lord, about the Lord. There's nothing I would rather do. I would drop anything for that. In fact, there is no greater thrill than to turn somebody on to the truth about Jesus Christ, to see them understand for the first time and to have their guilt removed and to find peace for the first time and, and, and to, to find His love in their life. And there's nothing funner than to see that. And if this woman had asked for it, if this woman wanted me to talk to her, I would have been there as fast as the speed limit allowed. But I've been there enough times to know that if she doesn't want it, if she is already refusing to hear from, from her family and friends, then to go and force a presentation of the gospel on her is worse than cruel. It's downright destructive. It hurts. It confuses. It alienates. It angers. And, and probably worst of all, 
what it, what it may very well do is undo the work that God is already working through a believing nurse or, or another family member who is sharing the truth in the context of their love and concern. You know, I also find it just helpful to realize that we don't have to push anybody. It's not helpful. It doesn't work. It's not constructive. And, and, and as you're, you're going through life and, and taking opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ, sharing truth in any way you can, man, take advantage of that. Do it. Go as far as you can go. If God opens an opportunity, take it. Even, even create opportunities. Plan them. Bring up conversation with people. Go as far as you can go. Go all the way to explaining who Jesus Christ is, how much He loves them, how able He is to remove the guilt of their sins, how ready He is to forgive them and embrace them and to give them eternal life. Go as far as you can go, but no further. If it becomes clear that they don't want it, that they don't want to hear it, that they don't want the truth, don't force it on them. Lo- lovingly leave them with what you've been able to give them, and God will use that. And if they respond to that, God will give them more. Maybe even giving you the privilege of coming back at a later date to explain more truth to them. Well, the parable that, that Jesus gave them actually is about presenting the truth to people. The whole point of the parable it, it, it revolves around how people respond to truth when it's given to them. Let me read Jesus' explanation, his interpretation of the parable. Starting in verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown it. In them. And in a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And when the affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of the world. And the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Jesus starts by making it clear that what the parable is about is more than farming. And that understanding this is critical if they're going to understand any parable. He says, if you don't understand this, how are you going to understand anything? And I think the point he's making, he's basically saying, listen, when I tell a little story, a cute little story, realize there's more to it than that. There's something behind the story. You see, Jesus uses these parables to get us from things we know to things that we don't understand. And he's trying to say there is a spiritual truth here, not just a physical 
truth, not just a physical description. There is a spiritual truth, a truth about about how the kingdom of God works, about how ministry works, about why you are the way you are, why you feel what you feel, how people are, how God is. William Barclay calls parables, he says, parables are earthly stories with heavenly points. See, and Jesus wants them to understand whenever he tells a little story, to look beyond and to find out what it is that he's trying to say to them. And then he explains the story that the sowing of the seed is actually a picture of why different people respond differently to truth, to, to the Word of God. Now, he says the, the, essentially the critical part is, is not how the seed is sown. The critical factor is not the technique you use in flinging it out. Though we can grow in our skill at sharing the gospel, that's not the critical issue. The farmer just threw the seed out the same way on each type of soil. The critical factor was the condition of the heart, the condition of the soil that it fell on, the condition of the person who received the word. And then Jesus uses the four different types of soil to describe four different types of responses to truth. First, there was the hard soil. There's the soil on the path that's been packed down, and the seed falls on it, and it can't penetrate at all. And this describes people who don't want to hear it. They don't want to deal with it all. They don't want to hear truth. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to, 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 to uh, consider it. They've already jumped to their conclusions. They've already got a, a, an argument that satisfies them, maybe an intellectual argument or a rational argument, maybe a religious argument, maybe a, a, an emotional argument or, or a personal experience that satisfies them, and they don't want to question. They don't want to look at it anymore. Their motto is, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. You know, often these are very religious, very moral people. It's often also that, that, that religiousness, that morality that, that creates the shell that makes it impossible for the word, for the truth to penetrate and to get to their hearts. These people often say religion's too personal to talk about. I don't want to talk about it. But often they're, they're willing to talk about other philosophies, other ways of life, other religions, anything except vulnerable dependence on Jesus Christ. Like I said, these people don't want to hear it. And so the enemy comes and snatches that truth away. It doesn't work its way in. It's gone. They don't even think about it. They don't remember it anymore. And the enemy comes and takes it away and reinforces the power of those arguments against the truth in their mind. Well, the second type of soil is the rocky soil. Now, this isn't soil with rocks laying all around it. Uh, when they prepared a field, they'd go and pick up all the rocks and build them into a fence or make a pile of them. This is soil in which the, the, the rock layer, the bedrock, is very close to the surface. So it's very thin soil, uh, very shallow soil. It describes shallow people. People who, when they hear the truth, they say, that's great. This is wonderful. Here's the answer to all of my problems. Here's the easy street to health and wealth and, and mental ease. They, uh, they, they jump in with both feet. They begin reading their Bibles and quoting them right and left. They love the high of, of religious experience. All of their troubles seem to be melting away. But when some troubles won't melt away... 
when, when, when they are confronted with pain that they can't get rid of. They're, 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 there's illness, there's financial difficulty, and they crash. They feel burned. They wither up, dry up spiritually. And they say, this is not the way it was supposed to be. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't get cancer. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't get laid off. My child shouldn't die. I shouldn't fail that college exam. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what I signed up for. And they become defeated, cynical, bitter. They often move on to the next fad, the next thing that will promise a quick an easy fix. And Jesus knew that's where most of this crowd was coming from. That's where they were. That was the kind of soil they were. Then you have the third kind of soil. The third kind of soil is the thorny soil. And these are people who have been growing well. They put down deep roots. They're not just there for the quick fix. They are there because they are convinced that it's true. They've made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life, even when it's been hard. And they've allowed the truth, the Word of God, to affect them emotionally. During those times when the sun is scorching and they feel like they're going to wither and dry up, they remind themselves of the truth of who God is and how much He loves them, the truth of, of how life can be healthy. And they, they hold on to that truth. And, 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 and during those those times when life gets confusing, they follow. They do it even when it's hard. But there just seem to be other things in their lives that are starting to crowd the Lord out. Now, the word choke that's used here doesn't mean to throttle, to grab somebody by the neck. It's not a, a frontal attack. It refers to just crowding it out. Crowding the Lord out of their lives. These people have good things in and of themselves that are starting to grow out of healthy proportion in their lives. And there's no room left for the Lord. Jesus describes three categories of, um, of weed. Three categories that I think describe, fit into a, a spiritual digression. First, he says there's the worries of the world. And these are just the normal, everyday things we've got to pay attention to. Raising a family, driving a soccer practice and gymnastics and music lessons and buying clothes, um, doing good at work, applying energy, uh, really improving your ability to perform on the job, maintaining friendships, spending time with people you care about, taking care of your house, keeping it from falling apart, fixing the things that need fixing, mowing the lawn. All of these things are, are good. They're fine. They're important stuff. But as they move from the category of things that we just have to give attention to, that are just part of living, when they become worries, when they become preoccupations and begin to consume us, then they begin to crowd our Lord out of our lives. It's not any one thing, and it doesn't happen all at once. It's just as each weed starts to grow up, it gets harder and harder to remember what our priorities were. Harder and harder to see spiritual things. And having made that, that movement from giving attention to these things to allowing them to become worries, allowing them to become anxieties, we lay ourselves open to the next and more deadly 
weeds, the deceitfulness of riches. Now, that word deceitfulness, I think, is a fascinating word. And you see, what happens is as we allow ourselves to be anxious, to worry about what we shall eat and what we shall drink and with what we shall clothe ourselves, where we'll live, these things of, of everyday life, as we, these become anxieties, money seems to be the answer to those fears. Money, if I had more money, then those fears would be taken care of. And we begin to look to money and to materialism to solve our problems, to provide what we need, to give us peace, to give us security. And having done that, we're, we're wide open to these deadly illusions, to this confusion, to this distortion, that, that, that material, that money can take care of us. And we start looking to it for other things as well, for our identity, for our sense of importance and our sense of value. And by this time, our, our spirits are terminal. The weeds are getting... Thick and deep. But the final stage in the pathology, the, the final category of weeds that Jesus describes is, is desire for other things. Having lost sight of the spiritual priorities, having the weeds already pretty dense, pretty thick in our lives, and not finding satisfaction, not finding peace in, in, in money, either because we don't have it or because having it, it didn't deliver what it promised. We start looking toward other things to fill the void. Looking toward romance and sex. Looking uh, toward popularity, prestige, fame within our significant social circles. Looking for hobbies to become absorbed in, to, to be distractions, to keep us from feeling the emptiness and the loss. See, when that happens, again, the weeds are so thick that we can't see the spiritual things anymore. We don't know why we're empty anymore. We don't understand what's going on. The weeds have entirely uh, obscured our spiritual life. And realize these people aren't dead. They're just fruitless. There's just no joy, no love, no peace, no patience, no kindness, no self-control, no ministry to others, no bringing the, 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 the life-giving word the healing word of Jesus Christ to other people. And then finally, there is the good soil. This is soil that's deep and rich, soil that has taken the seed into them deeply. People that have accepted the word of God, even the hard parts of it, and submitted to him in his word have allowed it to affect them, just like the last category. They've allowed it to affect them when times are hard. When they're... When they're